We direct your attention now to the Word of God, to the book of 1 Samuel. And I'm going to begin reading there about halfway through the reading in your bulletin in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll read exclusively the prayer or the song of Hannah. And it's, if you're reading there, it's about halfway down. You'll see it there together. Hear the word of the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired them, hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The key phrase in all of this prayer that Hannah prayed is found there in the last two phrases. He that is the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointing. The word that's translated power is the word horn. It's the word we read when we read our call to worship a moment ago, where it said the horn is exalted. It's the word that's in that very first verse, where Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. The word translated strength is the word horn. It's a shame the ESV people didn't keep that in there. And I know why they didn't. People wouldn't know what the word horn meant. But let me tell you what the word horn means. The horn is the horn of the mighty ox. In the ancient culture, a prince of beasts powerful in the wild, prolific in the pasture, 
and prosperous in the field was the great ox with a huge set of horns that went up and out. And the larger the ox was, the more it was admired. In fact, so much so that the whole Baal, the culture of the false god, the Baal, was the worship of the ox. The oxen, the bull, had the big horns. That's what they were alluding to when they worshiped the golden calf. It was the young bullock that was seen to be imperial, powerful, strong. The ox with the, the horn. And actually what the horn means all through the Bible is it means a kingdom. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, you'll read about a big horn and a little horn. Those are kingdoms. Seven horns. Ten horns. The horn is the symbol of the power. In fact, here I'll tell you what the symbol of the horn is. It's the power and the glory and the kingdom. That's what the horn represents. And here is this young mother, Hannah, praying to the Lord God Almighty. And the theme of her prayer is the horn, the power, the might, and most specifically, the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom of God. And her prayer and all that it entails, and we'll look at a little bit of that. It's very rich, but we'll look at a few of the highlights of it in a moment. But it moves toward the climax of the embodiment of the power. The Almighty God's power is placed in a person. The glory of God is seen in the face of a person. And that person is raised up to sit upon a throne. That person is a king of a kingdom. And so she phrases it like this. He will give strength to strength. He will give horn to his king. This is God's king. And will exalt the power, the horn of his anointed. What in the world is a little Jewish maiden who was barren and like her ancestor Rachel was loved by her husband but she had no children and she had begged God for a baby or a baby boy. And it wasn't that God would give her a baby boy that she might enjoy the baby boy all the days of her life, but that she might give that baby boy back to the Lord, that he may serve the Lord all of his life. That was her prayer. If there ever was a person in the Old Testament that sought first the kingdom of God, 
and the power and the glory and the kingdom. It was humble Hannah. I don't know how many times growing up in church I heard the preacher preach on Hannah on Mother's Day. That's because she is a pivotal character in the Old Testament. Up till now there's been no king in Israel. In fact, the best they're able to do is they have what is called the judge or the judges or the leaders or the heroes. Men like Othniel and Gideon and Samson. There have been priests in Israel. God ordained the priesthood, the tribe of Levi, when he separated them and redeemed them from the people and set them apart to be his priests. And through the house of Aaron and the three tribes of the house of Levi, God raised up a mighty priesthood that has ruled in Israel all these years. And Hannah's married to one of these priests, Elkanah. And he's a faithful man. He goes up, he worships the Lord, he brings his household. He's a godly man. He makes sacrifice. He goes to the shrine at Shiloh where Eli, the old aging high priest, is serving. And everything that Elkanah knows to do out of the book of Deuteronomy, out of the book of Leviticus, everything he knows to do and has been trained to do as a priest, a descendant of Levi, specifically of the tribe of Koath, He has led his family in observance of the sacrifices and the offerings and the prayers and the feast and the fasts of God's divine economy. And Hannah's been with her dear husband through all of this. And she's prayed, and last week I suppose you looked at the prayer that Hannah prayed, pouring out her heart to the Lord in prayer and God hearing her prayer answering her prayer and giving her a little baby and you've heard me say this time and again when God gets ready to do something he pulls out a little baby he did it with Moses he did it with Samuel he did it with Jeremiah he did it with Isaac He did it with Jesus. And you see these very important little babies that are born in Scripture prefiguring the coming of Jesus. You see these babies' birth narratives expanded upon the circumstances of their birth. And so we see this in the life of Samuel because you see Samuel whose name means probably given by the Lord, although they're not sure, it's a lot of language (laughs) uh, work that has to be done on that, but it's given by the Lord and given to the Lord. The Lord gave Hannah the baby Samuel, but then Hannah gave the Lord the baby Samuel, gave him back to the Lord to serve. So this is what we have with this wonderful Madonna and child. We have a baby, a baby boy. 
And on this occasion, the baby boy has been weaned and he's being brought and given to the Lord. That's what the first part of your text that we didn't read, it continues the narrative of how they brought the baby who's now probably three or four years old. He's weaned. Traditionally, the age for weaning was about three in that ancient culture. Some have argued that he may have been as old as 12 because of some of the things it says about his nurture and his growing up. But more than likely, he was about preschool age, far too young for a mother to depart with a baby boy. This was a little more serious than just walking him to school on his first day of school. She's taken him to the Shiloh. She's taken him to the shrine. She's taken him to the priest. And she's going to hand him over so that he can be raised at the altar. He was a Kohathite. A Kohathite's job was to defend and to minister to the furniture in the tabernacle. One tribe ministered to the tabernacle. One tribe ministered to all the foundation pieces. And the other one was the Kohathites. They ministered to the altar and to the various sacred places, tables, and all that was in the tabernacle. And that's what little Samuel was. He was a priest by birth. But we'll later learn when we get through the story that he was a prophet by call. And we'll also learn that he served all the days of his life in the role of a king. He was the one long-standing judge over Israel who not only served as a king but set the stage for the king and he was the one that would anoint Israel's first kings. First Saul and then the rest of this portion of Samuel will talk about the reign of King Saul and then of course God's anointed David, the man after God's own heart. Let's take a look for a moment at this particular song and see what was on the heart of Hannah. This is pure prophecy. Hannah, through the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, is uttering pure prophecy. It's not original to her. It is the prophetic theme, as we'll see in just a moment, that goes through the whole Bible. But this is Hannah in her generation, in this transitional time in Israel, when Israel's spirituality was at a low ebb, and sin was rampant in the tribes, and the priesthood had become corrupt, and there was no king in Israel. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. During this critical time, God raises up this woman and this little baby to begin the work of doing what? Establishing his kingdom. Hannah's engaged in kingdom work. That's why centuries later, 10 centuries to be exact, about a hundred and about a thousand and twenty years later, to be really exact, there's a little lady in the temple whose name was. Hannah, who the Bible says was a prophetess who saw another baby, the baby Jesus, as Mary and Joseph brought the baby to the temple for consecration. 
And she exclaims there that she has seen the anointed one, the king of Israel. Another Hannah, another prophetess, looking at another baby, but seeing with a unified perspective the kingdom of God as it is embodied in its king. So listen to the the song. It says she prayed it. And by the way, it's an interesting study in the Bible. Most of you are probably aware of this. How a song and a prayer and an oracle sometimes get all mixed and merged because they all are worship of the Lord. Many of our songs, our hymns are prayers. And many of our prayers can be converted easily to songs. That's what we see in, in the book of Psalms. The Psalter of Israel, the five books of the Psalms are loaded with one after another prayers, which are also songs, which are also oracles. That is, they are words from the Lord, prophecies and, and uh, doxologies and all the rest. And that's what we see in this particular song. Let's take a look at the song quickly. Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. It starts with this emotion. If we ever saw anybody's emotion in scripture, we see Hannah. She poured out her soul to the Lord in prayer repeatedly over and over. She shed tears. She was heartbroken. Her soul had been poured out to the Lord time and again, asking for this one request that he would give her a child, so that she could give the child to the Lord. You know, the Lord can work with that kind of stuff. The Lord can work with that kind of heart. The heart that is broken, the heart that is eager, the heart that will do anything for God. And who will turn around and ask anything from God. Believing. And so now, we saw her in the temple a few short years earlier, and she was sobbing and weeping and praying. Her lips were moving. Not a sound was coming out. The, the old high priest Eli thought she was drunk. Thought she was a worthless woman. Literally a daughter of Belial. Daughter of Satan. Thought she had some kind of possession in her soul. But no, she was emotional. And she was an emotional not because she had a hormone issue that day but she was emotional because she was dealing with the things of God, holy things, sacred things, things that if you really understand what they are, it just tears your soul from the inside out. It breaks you emotionally. It brings you to a place of contrition. It brings you a place of awe. And she had been dealing with these holy things. She had felt the Lord work in the very depths of her soul, but even so in the very depths of her body. The Lord had performed a miracle and she had conceived and the language is the same. She conceived and brought forth a son and called him Samuel. Just like Mary conceived, brought forth a child and called his name Emmanuel, Jesus. My soul, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength or my horn is exalted in the Lord. She knew where her strength was was it was in the Lord my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation I don't know if you noticed in the story in the first chapter but 
her co-wife, the woman that Elkanah had taken to himself to have children because Hannah couldn't, just like Rachel and Leah and Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. <laughs> you, know the, you know the sad story in Scripture how people give up on the Lord and the Lord then turns around and does the miracle that he said he was going to do. He keeps his word, but he keeps it in his own good time. That's how the Lord works. And Paniah had given her a lot of grief, had mocked her and ridiculed her because she didn't have any children. And so now she says, my mouth derides my enemies. In other words, I get the last word because I rejoice in your salvation. This is what it's always about. It's about the salvation of the Lord. This is what this passage is about. This is what this, uh, the kingdom is about. This is what the whole of God's work is about. It's a, it's a saving mission to rescue humanity from the depravity and the sin and the condemnation that came about by their first parents. And now God uses this set of parents to bring about one who will bring us to closer and point us to a restorer of salvation in Israel. And then she goes into doxology. There's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. The uniqueness of God's holiness. That's one of the meanings of the word holy. It means apart from, separate, nothing like it, other than. It also means pure. It means separate and it means nothing else like it. And there's nothing like the Lord. There were plenty of gods in the ancient world. There were plenty of deities. There were plenty of notions of deities. There were shrines everywhere. There were priests and holy men everywhere. But there was none like God. The uniqueness of God is seen over and over and over in the scriptures. And this is a theme that the prophets will pick up, especially Isaiah and others will push this theme throughout Israel's history of the holiness of God and the uniqueness of God. Then she says, talk no more so proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth. The people that blaspheme God need to shut their mouths. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. God is omniscient. He knows everything and because he knows everything, his actions are all weighed. They're justified. Every time God acts, he acts in a way that is manifestly right and successful. That's why the servant song of Isaiah says, my servant will be successful. He will deal prudently. He will act successfully. He will make it happen. God's determined to make it happen. And Jesus on the cross said, I did it. It's finished. I made it happen. And that's what God does in his great power. And then he talks about the bows of the mighty are broken. Literally, it means the bowmen, the, the actual archers are the ones that are broken. It's not just that their bows are broken, but the feeble have put on strength. And notice the contrast between the mighty, the wicked, the warrior, the, the one that's haughty, and the one that the Lord saves. First thing the Lord does in his salvation is he, he gives strength. He wins the battle. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. They have tasted of the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. They have had the manna from on high. They have had the Lord, the anointed one, as their Savior. 
This is all about salvation. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. It's a, it's a reference to her own personal experience, but it goes beyond that. She had five or six children, depending on how you calculate it, but she didn't have seven, but seven's the number of perfection. The barren will bring forth the perfect. The virgin will bring forth the perfect man. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. That's true. Our hands, our lives are in the hands of God. He is the one that gives life. He's the one that withdraws it. The earliest bard in the Bible, Job, said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But I think this passage goes beyond that. If we go to the anointed that's spoken of as the theme of the passage, it's talking about Christ. You know who killed Jesus on that cross? It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the ordeal of crucifixion. It wasn't the spear. It wasn't the nails. It was God Almighty. God Almighty struck in the body of Jesus on the cross the blow that is due you and me, every sinner. Every sin has the death penalty in it. And every sin that we've committed deserves death because it's rebellion against the sovereign of the universe. And then the Bible says it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. Jesus died because God was angry at sinners. And when Jesus took upon himself sin, God was angry at him. We, we talk about separating the sin from the sinner, but God doesn't do that. The sinner embodies the sin. The sin is the essence of the sinner. So if God wants to get rid of sin, he's got to get rid of a sinner. That's what he did on the cross for us in our salvation. Is he struck that death blow in the sinner who was Christ, who himself had no sin. He didn't need to die, but he was bearing our sin, and he did. But he brings to life. That's the resurrection. The Bible tells us over and over that God raised him up. Jesus didn't just resuscitate himself and kick off the clothes and stir and give the heavy shoulder to the stone and get out of there. No, God raised him up by his power, by his spirit. He raised him from the dead. And this is what God has power to do. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. So the Lord makes poor and makes rich. You ever thought about that in your looking at your own net worth? <laughs> What's involved in Christian stewardship? What's involved in recognizing what God has entrusted you with and what you have a stewardship over in your life? And how have you handled it? How has God worked with you in your finances? And what have you done with that? And have you realized that it is the Lord your God that has power to give you wealth? Ask Job if God can make you poor. And if God can then make you rich, if God can give you the riches, he brings low and he exalts. Listen to this language here in verse 8. He raises up the poor, the poor in spirit, Jesus calls them, from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. What's the ash heap? The ash heap is where the person is sat down in despair. 
and helplessness and torn their garments and taken the ashes and poured it upon their head and the ashes heap up around them and they pour them on again. It's the sign of mourning. It's the sign of depression. It's the sign of despair. But it's also the sign of repentance. Sackcloth and ashes where the soul comes to God needy and low and, and helpless and sore and broken and starving. And the Lord bestows salvation. It's the one that calls upon the Lord gets this. He's made them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. I like the way Paul says it best. He's raised us up to sit in heavenly places. Spiritually, he has restored us entirely, even in this world, and will do so in the world to come. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. A reference to creation. And by the way, young people, if you ever give up the, the biblical view of creation, you've basically given up the biblical view of everything else. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And God created the heavens and the earth, all of the universe, and he did it by his own power, his own breath, his own word, his own spirit went forth and created it. And everything we believe is foundational to that. If you start adopting another, another cosmogony, the origin of the cosmos that is not biblical in some way or another, you find an alternative view. You have departed from the biblical worldview. You have given somebody else the glory for creation and not God Almighty. And here's this little Hebrew prophetess 3,000 years ago not in a science class, but in the shrine of the Lord with her hands raised and tears of joy flowing down and her heart bubbling over. And old Eli and everybody around there didn't hear what she said when she was praying because she prayed silently, deep within her heart, quiet, desperate petition of the Lord. But here I've got a feeling they heard her all through the court as she praised the Lord and sang this song of praise and glory to the God who we're going to give them the king. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. That's the path. The feet walk in the path. And the light to the path and the lamp to the feet is the word of God. And God guides us by his word in the path. It's a straight path. It's a narrow path. But I'm telling you, it's an upward path. And it leads to everlasting life. You may like the broad road. It's a little easier to walk. It's not quite so hard. You're not walking uphill. You're going downhill. And it's a broad road. And you've got a lot of company. Many there are that are on that road. But if you're on that road, the broad road, Jesus says it leads to destruction. So how are your paths, your feet being guarded? And how are they being kept as you walk along whatever path you're walking along? The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for by might shall a man, shall, not by might shall a man prevail. This is a prediction of perdition. Cut off in darkness is a good definition of hell. You didn't want any more definition of hell than that. 
That'd be enough. Cut off from God, from the land of the living, from the presence of the Lord in His glory in darkness, in an outer darkness. No wonder the Bible says, Jesus said in the parable, that there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Because that's, that's the path. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. As I said before, the scriptures are binary as far as to your particular condition. You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God. You're either following Christ or you're moving away from Christ. You're either coming to God and His salvation or you're straying or running from it. You're embracing Him or you're fighting Him. Are you an adversary of the Lord? The Bible says you shall be broken to pieces. And the language she uses against them, he shall thunder in heaven. The vibroacoustic of a fluid moving through a pipe sets up an awful, awful roar. And that's the roar we find in Scripture that is the voice of God in His judgment. The voice of many waters, a roaring. And that's what God's judgment is. It's a picture of God's judgment. The thunder is. Well, it says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. There's a universality to this. Here she is in a little tiny province of a little tiny tribal uh, group in the ancient Near East. Praying at an ancient Hebrew shrine. And she recognizes her God as the God of the ends of of the earth. It is universal. The judgment of the Lord goes to the ends of the earth. By the way, the gospel does too. The gospel goes. You can't get away from judgment and you can't get away from the gospel. You've heard the gospel this morning. You'll hear the gospel again maybe. You may not ever hear the gospel. You may not have ears to hear. I don't know, but the gospel is going out. Are you hearing it as it goes forth? And then the final climax phrase that we talks about, he will give strength to his king. He will exalt the power of his anointed. Now what's going to happen is Samuel, the little boy is going to grow up and he's going to anoint King David. And King David is going to be the one that is the ideal king. He's the, he's the king that is the model for Christ. He's the model for Christ in his perfections, in his power, in his person, in his being after the heart of God. He's even the model for Christ when Christ bears our sins. David will even have two sons. One will represent the disobedient son. He will be hanged. That's Absalom. He will be cursed of God and hanged. That happened to Jesus. David will have another son who will be the prince of peace, the favored son. Solomon. Everything about David will point us to various and many, many aspects of the work of Christ, but David is not the anointed. David's greater son, the son of David, Jesus, is the greater anointed one that is here. There's this song that she's singing, and if you'll give me, I'm, I'm out of time, but give me five minutes, would you? Let's have a nod of heads. Okay, I know the nursery workers won't be happy with me, but there's themes of this song. They are the emotion of the singer, the salvation of the Lord, the power and glory of the kingdom, the horn, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the omniscience of God, 
the justice and judgment of God. The enemies of God are never, never prevail. God is always victorious. The people of God are saved, are cared for. And it's a worldwide, ends of the earth, domination. It's a dominion that covers the earth. It's worldwide. This is the song that Hannah sings. But I want to tell you just in brief now, this is the same old song we've heard all along. It's the song that Moses sang in Exodus 15. Read it. These same themes. Moses, when they came across the Red Sea, led the people in this song. It's the song here now that Hannah sings when they begin to transition. It's the song that David sings in 2 Samuel chapter 23 as he comes to the end of his reign. In fact, uh, it's a psalm that is the themes of this song are, are recorded in a numerous psalms, especially Psalm 113, which is a virtual second stanza to this psalm. And Psalm 113 was the psalm that, that was used in the New Testament in a very special way. Themes of this particular psalm are found in Mary's Magnificat when she rejoices knowing that she's going to bear the Christ child. It's the song that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, set forth in the Benedictus when he praises the Lord. It's the same psalm. It's from the, it's recorded in the psalm. Psalm 113 is in the Hallel or the praise psalms. And it's the psalm that Jesus and his disciples sang at the Last Supper. And you'll find this song repeated one more time in the Bible. And that's in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. Let me read that as I close. You recognize the context there. And then they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Can you sing this song? 